Thank you, Daryl, for pastoring me today and pastoring us today in such beautiful worship. Just love. There's a gifting um, worship pastors have to be able to, to know a text, to know a, a message, and to be able to fill our worship with, with phrases and songs and, and lyrics and scripture that, that meet that text. And Daryl is, is second to none. I'm so thankful for him. Thank you, team for serving us this morning. Hey, well, we're glad you're here. Uh, this is a difficult day in many ways for our country. Um, and it's good for us to take some time like we did earlier and pray and continue to be thoughtful of what God is doing all around us. Um, this is also Pentecost Sunday. And that last lyric in King of Kings, uh, uh, that the Spirit lit the flame. That's what he did 2,000 years ago. 120 believers in the upper room, and the Spirit fell on all of them, and Peter preaches a message, 3,000 people come to know Jesus. And that is my prayer that, that through messages all over our country and churches and out and in the lives of believers, that a message would be preached and people would come to Jesus. Mm. Isn't that what we pray for? That's what we need. We don't need legislation. We need salvation. Well, this morning we're continuing our series called Ecclesia. This is our last Sunday to talk about it. It's been, I don't know about you, but this series has been so good for me. Uh, it's, it's, it's shown me so much about, you know, when, when the Lord, He kind of whispered in my heart to, to, to preach this series, and I was fearful. I was like, Really? That's revelation, that's tough, you know, that felt like a difficult task. And yet every message that we preached has been just the Lord showing me something about Himself, about how He loves us, how closely connected He is to you and your family and your city and your church, how much He knows about what's going on and how great He is to meet every need that you don't have, to bring salvation, to bring forgiveness, to bring love and healing. It's just been beautiful, and today may be the most wonderful and beautiful example of that grace that we see in all seven churches. Of course, he also reminds us that if we don't do these things, there's judgment coming. There's a warning that Jesus gives, and uh, it is a loving warning and, and, and a warning nonetheless. We've talked about these seven churches, Ephesus. They had good doctrine, but they had forgotten to love Jesus. They were doing things out of the wrong motive because they felt like they needed to. It's what the Bible says to do, but their hearts were not engaged. Uh, Smyrna was, was sacrificing. Jesus said, continue to stand for me. Continue to sacrifice. Continue to believe that I'm with you, and I'll give you a crown of life. The church at Pergamum had compromised their faith in Jesus with the, with the false doctrine, believing that they could, yes, be in the church, but also be connected to these guilds and these unions that, that were having sexual debauchery and eating food to idols, and they thought, we can do all these things and still be Christians, right? Doesn't that sound like our country today? <laughs> you know, I'll just go to church, but I'll live however I want to the rest of the time. That, no, that's, that's not it. That is not the church of Jesus, and it, it breaks his heart, and he gives a warning for those of us that are struggling with that duality in our lives. And then the next church, Thyatira, was a little deeper, also struggling with deception, but they had gone so far as to let that deception become a philosophy and a message in the church and somebody to teach that message in the church. So they're believing in false doctrine and allowing a false teacher, and deception is running rampant. Then we get to the church at Sardis that was a dead church. It was dead. And yet Jesus says, I, I believe there's a few names, he says, that still have a remnant. They still have something. Strengthen what remains. Wake up and remember who you are. Then we got to the church of Philadelphia. And what's interesting about these last two churches, Jesus saves these last two churches, the church of Philadelphia and the church that we're looking at today, the church at Laodicea. They are both ends of the spectrum. Last week we talked about what an amazing church the church of Philadelphia was, right? Incredible. Not because it was easy. They, they, they were persecuted. They, they, they fought for their lives. They, they were standing for Jesus with all that they were, and yet they were faithful and obedient and loving and missional, and God gave them an opportunity for more mission. The church we really want to be like, the church of Philadelphia, and yet the opposite end of the spectrum 
Today we get to look at the worst church, the church of Laodicea. They were a broken and lost congregation. And Jesus says when he talks to this church, to these people in this church, you make me sick. Can you imagine? The king of glory, the shepherd of his church looking at your church and going, you make me want to throw up. Mm. These seven churches are located in modern-day Turkey. Um, the best example, Philadelphia, worst example, Laodicea. It's probably the best-known church in Revelation. Uh, you've probably heard more messages about the church of Laodicea, if you've been around the church very much, than any of the other churches that we've gone through. Uh, but sometimes, and I know I've heard often messages preached that maybe weren't preached in the right context. And I pray by God's grace that he'll help us get it right today. Um, Laodicea is the final of the seven. It's the wealthy, wealthy city. It's known for having a very wealthy banking center, sort of a system, early center of banking. Uh, gold played a big part in that, obviously. It was known for its production of a certain fashion goods made out of this very uh, expensive and, and soft black wool that came from Laodicean sheep. And they exported this, uh, these, ru these rugs and these uh, garments all over the Roman world. And they were known for this clothing, came from Laodicea. They were also known for a medical school that, that uh, existed in Laodicea. And so this is kind of an upper echelon of, of society with money and fashion and a medical school. And in the medical school, the main thing that they exported from the medical school was a product uh, called Phrygian powder. This is an area called Phrygia. And they smashed up these rocks, some, some sort of mineral rocks, and created a salve. And with that salve, they could put it in people's eyes that had issue with their eyes, and it would help them to see better. It would help heal their eyes. These are the things they're known for. They're also known for being a very independent people. I mean, very self-sufficient. In fact, in 60 AD, there was an earthquake. We've been talking about an earthquake in 17. Well, there's one that happens in Laodicea in 60 AD, and it wrecks the place. Well, like usual, Rome comes to the aid of Laodicea, and they kind of have sort of a FEMA, kind of a, you know, emergency services set up, and they're ready to help. And Laodicea goes, we got this, thanks. They don't take Roman money. They said, we can care for ourselves. We'll rebuild ourselves. We don't need your money. They were a very self-sufficient, prideful, arrogant people, and they proved it in many ways in that example as one of them. Those are kind of some of the better things they're known for. One of the bad things they're known for as a city is their drinking water. Horrible water. You ever been on a trip and, and the locals go, don't drink the water? You know? I don't know why it always, I've gone all around the world. I don't know why it is. I don't know. I open my mouth in a shower, you know? And it's always at that moment with my mouth wide open with the water going. I go, oh yeah. You know, I don't know why that happens to me. But uh, this is one of those cities. Don't drink the water. Bad, bad, awful water. So it's, those are some of the, the background aspects and context that we need to think about as we get into our message this morning. Look with me in the Word as we look at our last church, the church of Laodicea, Revelation 3, starting at verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's my prayer that today we open our ears and our hearts to hear what he says to us. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for writing to these churches, giving this revelation to John, preserving it for us to hear your heart, to hear your expectation, to hear your warnings. God, I believe there are different people within the sound of my voice at different stages of their walk with you. Some people are lost and don't know you. Some people are, are baby Christians and still learning what it means to walk in obedience to you. Some people have known you for a long time, Lord, and they are faithful. God, we're, we're all over the map here today, and we're all growing, hopefully, to become the authentic disciples you want us to be. My, my prayer, God, is you open our ears, open our hearts to your spirit to learn what it is you want to say to us, what you want to speak to us. Give us the courage to obey. Father, I pray that you'd help me to decrease today, that nothing comes from this pulpit about me. Lord, that you would increase and that you, by the Holy Spirit of the living God, would lead us to all truth. Break us down. Help us to surrender, Lord God, to the beauty of your kindness and your mercy and your unspeakable grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus does what he's done in all of these churches. He starts these letters with an introduction about himself. He's always speaking contextually about something that's going on in that city, something that's going on with those people or that church. It's just this connection, almost like to say, hey, I know you're going through dot, dot, dot. It's beautiful. It's so personal. It's so intimate. And yet he also mentions something about himself, almost as if to say, and yet I'm better than what you're struggling with. I've got everything you need. I've got you. I'll cover you. And it's no different today when he says in verse 14 to the angel of the church at Laodicea, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He gives us three descriptors of himself, three different descriptions. Number one, the words of the amen. What's an amen? I'll tell you, if you're a preacher, you know what an amen is. We like those, don't we? What it means is, amen, what it means is when somebody says amen, it means that they, they're saying, hey, that's true. What you just said is true. That's a true statement. Or what you just said, I agree with that. Or that's right. Keep telling it. Keep speaking it. Keep preaching it. I affirm that what you just said is right. Jesus here is saying that he is the validation of all the truth of God. He meets every expectation and every promise of God. In fact, He is the source of truth. That's what John 14, 6 says. It doesn't say that Jesus has some truth. He says He is the way. He's the only way to Christ. He is the truth, right? And He is the life. Not that He has little elements of these things. No, He defines these things. He defines these things. He is the only way. In a very hyperbolic sense, listen to what I'm saying. He's the only way to the Father. He defines the way to the Father. He is truth. There is not your truth and my truth. There is one truth. His name is Jesus. He defines what truth is. And He defines real life. And much of what we're going to talk about today is people who, they don't believe that. They've bought into something else. And we do the same thing. We buy into a lesser life. Please, friends, live the life that God has for you because you'll never find a better one. You'll never be more satisfied than in a life following, loving, serving Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He defines all of those things. He is the words of the amen. He is the last word, the guarantee of every promise of God. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Second descriptor he gives, he says, he is the faithful and true witness. So not only does Jesus guarantee every promise that God makes, he's also saying here, everything I say and do is true and faithful. God is faithful, I validate everything he says and does, and I'm faithful. And there's also this aspect, and we've seen this before in these letters, an aspect of the uh, sort of the, the, the opposite of what's going on in the city, a contrast, if you will. 
So one of the things you can know about the church of Laodicea is they were not faithful and they were not true, okay? And this is sort of a way of Jesus saying, but I am. Friends, when I read that, I just, I was filled with hope. Because how, how much in my life am I not faithful and not true? And Jesus says, I got you. I got you. I'm faithful and I'm true when you're not. The third descriptor he gives. He says, the beginning of God's creation. It can sound a little confusing. Is it sounding like he was the first thing created by God? No, no, that's not what he's saying. John says this in John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember the Bible says that Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the Word that John is speaking of. Verse 2, he says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was with God in the beginning. He is the creator. He is the initiator. The writer of Hebrews says he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the beginning and the end. Jesus is saying something here that we need to not miss, and that is that he is God, that he is deity. And there's a reason he's saying it to this church, because they were struggling with their faith. See, Laodicea sits between two towns, Hierapolis, six miles away, Colossae, ten miles away. You're familiar with Colossae because of the letter to the Colossians that Paul wrote. Well, they're sort of a sister church to the church in Laodicea. And the hope of Paul and, and others and Jesus is that they would be sister churches, that they would be able to learn from one another, they would pass letters back and forth to one another. And naturally, because of the location, they have some of the same problems as each church has. Uh, Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians somewhat in part because of some heresy that was going on in the church. Much of the New Testament is written to establish believers, and some of that establishment is to speak against heresy that's taking place in a church or in an area. So Paul or another writer would write to that area and try and correct heresy. This is what he's doing in Colossians. I talked about this, I think, last week or the week before, I can't remember, but uh, this, this thought of Gnosticism. It's, it's the belief and philosophy that the only thing that really matters are the ethereal, mysterious things that we can't touch or feel. That's what's spiritual. Not flesh and blood, not matter. That doesn't matter. That's what they would preach. And so that is taking place in the church in Colossae. And these people are, are, are believing things that are not true. And one of the things they're, they're not believing is that Jesus is Lord. They don't believe Jesus is God. They're struggling with this, this issue. And can I just say, if you have a warped view of Jesus and you don't believe He is God, you cannot be saved. You have to have a, a true sense of who Jesus is. He is God. And if you don't believe that, you cannot be saved. That's why we have pseudo-churches, like the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. It looks like a church, sort of. And trust me, they're doing everything they can do to, to normalize what they do to look like every other church. They are not. Because they don't have a, a lofty view, a high view of who Jesus is. They don't believe He is God. Therefore, they are not saved. You can't have a warped view of Christ and know Jesus. Jehovah's Witness don't believe that Jesus is God. Therefore, they cannot be saved. You have to believe Jesus is God. His Word is true, and it's full of examples like this one from John. So Paul is right. He writes to the Colossians to combat this issue of heresy in the church. Uh, and this is, this is one of the first places that he does it. I want you to kind of read this with me. Think about that heresy and how Paul is going after this thought, okay? Colossians 1, verse 13. And see if Paul is trying to go after the fact that Jesus is Lord and in control. Look here. He was delivered from us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You see what Paul's trying to say here? You guys got to get this right. You're believing something that is not true. And Jesus is saying sort of the same thing. I am uh, I'm the first. I'm the beginning of, of all of God's creation. He's, he's hitting on this issue of heresy in the church. Then look what he says in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 2, about the church of Laodicea. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Right? He's saying spirituality is not just in any kind of mystery. No, you want to know a mystery? It's in Jesus. He's going against this Gnosticism in the church. Verse 3 which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul's making an argument here against what uh, some of these believers are saying and believing. Paul wanted his letter to also be heard and and taken in and understood by the church at Laodicea, not just in, in Colossae because this same issue is taking place. So look here at Colossians 4, 15. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. See, we don't know a whole lot about the church of Laodicea. And what we do know is right here in Colossians. Paul, it, Paul we don't know that Paul ever made it to, to Laodicea. We have a couple of names in Colossians that we think could, be, could have been the angel or the, the messenger or the pastor of the church uh, at Laodicea. We don't know a whole lot, but he says this, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Learn from one another. Be connected to one another. You have a similar uh, heresy going on. Make sure you learn the truth from one another. Paul's concerned about both of these communities and he wants them to know the truth. And Jesus in his introduction, back in Revelation here, he says, I'm the beginning of God's creation. In other words, I was with God, I am God, originator, creator, author of all that was created. And he says it all to refute any heresy that this church still holds. So then Jesus wastes no time after his introduction of himself I want you to notice something about this church. There's not one good thing said about the church. Even the dead church, you're dead. A little bit later he says, but there's a few names. They had something going on. They had something, he says, strengthen what remains. They had something remaining, not Laodicea. It's the worst church. In fact, it's not really a church. Call it a church. But it's sort of a pseudo-church. It once was a church. And by the way, just chronologically, do you know that these churches, this is about 30 years after their uh, start. It's interesting to think about. When I think about this church 30 years ago, man, it was a blowing and going church, on mission, doing some neat things. It's amazing what can happen in 30 years to a church. And what happened at Laodicea was complete death. It completely died. You know, I think about uh, what Jesus says in John 15, 5. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you'll bear much what? Fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So as churches remain in Jesus, as churches continue to follow his lead and, and serve him and surrender to him, fruit will, will be, a, it'll be a fruit-bearing church. But as soon as they're separated, as soon as there is a division from Christ, you can do nothing. And evidently that is the case of the church at Laodicea. They could do nothing and not one good thing is said about them. I want to show you five things here in our our message this morning. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus shows them their condition. He shows them their condition in verse 15 and 16. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. 
Jesus literally tells this group of people that they make him sick. Now, part of this is a contextual reference. I told you they had bad water. Colossae is 10 miles away. Hierapolis is six miles away. Hierapolis is known for hot springs. You know, we have hot springs, Arkansas. And some people think that the mineral water in and around the hot springs is, is medicinal. It's healing. That's what they thought back in that day for the hot springs of Hierapolis. They could heal in ways, they thought. Well, in Colossae were cool springs, very refreshing cool springs in, in uh, Colossae. The problem is Laodicea had no water source. So they had to pipe in their water either from Hierapolis or Colossae. The problem is back in that day they had to pipe water through nasty dirt-filled terracotta pipes. And by the time the cool refreshing water of Colossae would reach Laodicea it would be what? Lukewarm. What's worse is by the time the hot springs water from uh, Hierapolis would reach Laodicea, it would be lukewarm as well, but it also carried a calcified water that literally had an element that made people throw up. There, to this day, you can go to the ruins, you can see some of those terracotta pipes filled with the calcification that came from those hot springs, and it literally made people throw up. So Jesus, in one way, is speaking contextually about something that they know a lot about. That would, that would stink, wouldn't it? The water to be that bad, and Jesus is kind of making a reference to that. And they're the bad water. The Laodicean uh, church is made up of most, a lot of Jews uh, and people who thought they were Christians, but they weren't Christians, and people who thought they were Jews, but they weren't Jews. There's a large Jewish population in Laodicea. Some theologians think there could have been 10,000 Jews. Well, the people that were in the church of Laodicea were neither Jewish or Christian. They had left the Jewish faith, but they had never entered the kingdom of God. And they called themselves Christians, but they didn't know Christ. The church at Laodicea was a church by name only because they didn't know Jesus. This was a lost church. Jesus here is not speaking to people who know him. He's speaking to lost people. It's a shell of a church, if you will. They didn't follow the cold rules of uh, the Jewish faith, and they didn't have the warmth of a relationship with Jesus, either one. They were neither hot or cold. The biggest issue with the people in Laodicea was the fact that they were self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency makes God sick. See, they didn't think they needed Jewish religion, and they sure don't think they need Jesus. We got this. Remember what they told the Romans when the city was destroyed? We got this. That's also what they told God. It's what many of us tell God all the time. I got this. I'm good. I don't have to follow your way. I don't have to believe. I don't have to serve you in this certain way. I got this. Let me tell you, self-sufficiency makes Jesus sick. And it also makes people unsavable. A self-sufficient person can't know Christ. It's not possible. We have to come to the end of ourselves to know Jesus. Uh, a person that is lukewarm is fundamentally self-righteous. They have sort of an attitude of, I got this, I, I can make it on my own, I don't need God's help. So it's good to remember Jesus here is not speaking to Christians. Though I've heard this message of lukewarm and hot and cold spoken to people as Christians, have you? Often. But here's the thing, why do I say that they're not Christians? Jesus will never spit you out of his mouth if you know him, ever. John 6, 37 in the Amplified Bible says this, the one who comes to me I will most certainly not cast out. I will never, no never reject one of them who comes to me. He wouldn't speak that to a believer in Christ. He wouldn't spit out one of his own. So then Jesus begins to speak about the second point I wanna make this morning about their deception. There's a saying that says, you don't know what you don't know, and it's true. It's why we need each other in each other's lives. My wife is the one that helps me know a lot of things often that I don't know, and I'm so thankful for her. She shows me things that are uh, not great in me, and she helps me see them in love. We need each other to speak truth and life and say, hey, I think you might have a blind spot here. I love you. I'm not going anywhere, but I think this might be a blind spot. These people had an unbelievable blind spot in their lives. Not only did they not know Jesus, they were being deceived. They didn't know what they didn't know. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. These people were completely unaware of where they stood with God. Their spiritual life was zero. They thought life was all about what, how much money you could make, how much success you could have, right? How much attention you could garner for yourself. They, they, they had all this, this backwards sense of reality. I don't know if you remember, there's a song, Lori and I love this song back in the day. We were in college from a group called Truth, and the song was called uh, Living Life Upside Down. You may not remember it, but I loved it. It's such a great song. What if we're living life upside down? What if the things we think are what we should be doing are actually the opposite? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to these people. You're deceived. Have you ever been around somebody who has zero awareness? You're thinking of somebody, right? There's somebody, somebody in the family, it's uncle so-and-so or whatever the case. He doesn't care about anything. He's loud. He's obnoxious. He's brash. And you're like, oh, there's uncle so-and-so. He's totally clueless. At some point, you start feeling sorry for this guy. Right? You're like, oh my gosh, I just, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he does that. That's what it means to be pitiable. You're, you're pitied. You're so clueless, people feel sorry for you. Here's the thing about being self-righteous. Uh, and um, this, this is a quote from Spurgeon here. He says, a self-righteous man does not and cannot trust Christ. And therefore, he cannot see the face of God. None but the naked man will ever go to Christ for clothing. None but the hungry man will ever take Christ to be his food. None but thirsty souls will ever come to this well of Bethlehem to drink. The thirsty are welcome, but those who think they are good are welcome neither to Sinai nor to Calvary. They have no hope of heaven, no peace in this world, nor in that which is to come. Self-righteousness is what makes God sick. In fact, Jesus says, not only are you so clueless about the things in life spiritually that you think are important or unimportant, you're the opposite of what you think you are. He says, you think you're rich. You think the, that the, the wealth that you have in this earth is going to do anything for you if you die tonight? Remember the story Jesus tells about the man who fills his barns full of resources and he, his life is, is taken from him? What good are your riches? What good is your striving? He says, you need to come buy riches that last for eternity. The reality is you're the opposite of what you think. You're not rich, you're poor. You're the opposite of what you think. You're not without need. In fact, you have great needs. You're, you're so needy you can't see. You're blind. You're so needy that you can't even see that you're naked. Everybody else can see it. But you can't see it. You're the opposite of what you think. You're not prosperous. You're wretched. You make me want to throw up and you're pitiable, I feel sorry for you. These people have sadly been deceived. They're clueless to the truth of who they are. But the good news, friends, for all of us is this. Jesus loves sinners. <laughs> Jesus loves clueless people. He wants to help them get a clue. <laughs> he wants to help them understand what matters most in life. How often do we chase things that just don't matter, right? We chase uh, fame and money. And Jesus is saying, you need something more than that. I want to provide for you something deeper than what you see on this earth. This is the third thing, provision. Jesus says in, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus wants to provide needs for people. Not just these uh, needs every day, not just earthly needs. No, the deepest need of your life, the spiritual need of your life. It is the greatest thing that you need to pay attention to. And yet, how much of a percentage does your heart give it? The greatest need in your life is to pay attention to your spiritual need. How much percentage of your time? It's like my phone tells me how much screen time I've had on Facebook, right? It's pretty scary. How much heart time has my heart had on Jesus? 
How much prayer time has my life been surrendered to him? He wants to provide a need, a deeper, eternal need. Jesus speaks to the three things that Laodicea is known for. Isn't this interesting? He speaks about the gold that they have. They're a rich, wealthy banking society. He says, uh, you've been searching for gold, but what you need to do is buy from me. This is what's interesting is, this is a very business society. Lots of entrepreneurs, lots of people who think in that way. And so Jesus speaks their language. You want to do a deal? I counsel you to buy from me. He's speaking their language even. I count, listen, I got, I got some good advice. You want a good stock? You want to follow something that will really beat, man, it's going to be great for you guys. Buy gold from me. This gold doesn't melt away. This gold is eternal riches. Look at what First Peter says. Peter says in, in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus basically is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been uh, grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than, than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. What is the gold that Jesus wants to give us? Knowledge of himself. He wants to give us a faith that is, is untouched. It's something we take with us. If you have a pocket full of gold today, it's not going with you to heaven. But if you have a heart full of faith, that continues on to be with Jesus in heaven. So the question is, where are your investments? And what are we investing in? He speaks to these three areas, gold and banking. He says, no, you need eternal riches. I couldn't help but think about one of my favorite movies, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, right? George Bailey. He thought what mattered was his worth to his family and money and, and his dreams until he came to the place of tears. And you see that moment so beautifully directed. You see the moment in his eyes and his face when he gets it. And he begins to cry and he looks up and he realizes what matters is my faith in God, my family, and my community. That's what matters. He gets it. These riches last forever. Then Jesus goes at their fashion industry. Remember I told you they, they exported this black wool all over Rome. He says, no, what you need to do is buy for me white garments to cover the shame of your nakedness. Jesus is the only one who can give us forgiveness, can wipe the slate clean. And he uses what they know, this, this, this product that they export, this black wool, and says, that's not what you need. What you need is a white rope that is forgiveness. It is righteousness, my righteousness, given to you by the cross. And then he goes at this other very popular uh, third leg of the stool of who Laodicea is, their Phrygian eye powder. Look what he says. It says here, Nake, uh, clothe yourself and the, shame, uh, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Is that contextual? Is he speaking to some? I mean, that's one of the things they were most known for is this stuff that you put on your eyes. But he says, you can put that junk on your eyes all day. You still don't see your spiritual need. You still don't see the emptiness of your life. I'll give you something for your spiritual eyes to help you see what matters most. And my God, do we need that today for the Lord to show us what matters most in our lives so that we would invest in the things that will not burn up. How do you buy these things? It reminds me of Isaiah 55.1. It says, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And who have no money, come buy and eat. Isn't that interesting? Who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk uh, without money and without cost. Well, how do you buy these things? By the grace of God. That's what secures our deepest needs. Money won't get it. Whether you have it or you don't have it. It won't get you there. Only the grace of God covers your deepest need. And then he says this, 
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Some people say, well, that, that shows that he's speaking to believers, right? No, no. He loves unbelievers. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? He loves sinners. To reprove something is to expose it, to show a light on it, to show conviction. So he wants to help these people see the sinfulness in their lives. He wants them to see it. And then next, he wants to give them discipline, to be discipled, to be trained in what it means to live a life of holiness. And then again, he speaks their life. This is a very ambitious people. He says, so be zealous and repent. What he's saying is, man, you're working, you're running all the time for these deals. You want to get busy running to do something? Be zealous and run to repentance. One commentary said, don't walk, run to Jesus. When the Lord reveals in your heart sinfulness, when he does give you eyes to see, when he does convict you, when he does reprove and enlighten the things that are wrong in your heart, don't walk to Jesus, run, be zealous and repent. Here's the fourth thing. Jesus comes and visits this church. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. I don't know about you, but I've heard this verse so much. I honestly have missed the grace behind this verse. Look at this, unbelievable grace. Have you heard about something knocking at the door before? Jesus has spoken about this. Matthew 7, verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Jesus is saying, when you knock I'll open. But that's not what's happening in the church in Laodicea. Oh, so much grace that Jesus would condescend to a lost, self-righteous church and do the knocking. He said, you knock and I'll answer. You seek and I'll help you find. But here he condescends and he does the knocking. Won't you let me in? Don't you see me? Don't you see what the life I can give you can mean for you? He condescends. He does the knocking. It's another example of why this is a lost church. If, if Jesus was the savior of one person in that church, he would be in that church. But instead, he's outside the church knocking. There's a lost church. And yet Jesus, in his unbelievable grace, comes and does the knocking. He talks about the Greek word that he uses here about, I'll come in and I'll eat with you. That, that's referring to the evening meal. The evening meal in Middle Eastern culture was the best meal. It was the biggest meal. It was the meal that, that you would lay back and you would, you would enjoy each other's company and relationship and talk and spend time. And it was the meal before the dark of night. Jesus is saying, I'm knocking. And anyone, if anyone hears this, anyone hears this and lets me in. I'm going to come in. I want to have a relationship. I want to spend time. I want to eat with him, and I want to do it before the dark of night because that dark of night is coming. I want to save you. I want to be with you. Who will hear me knocking and open this door? It's an incredible, incredible show of love and grace for Jesus that he would be willing to come to them and knock on the door of this church, this lost church. Lastly, I want you to see that Jesus wants to give promotion. Verse 21, he says, the one who conquers, and I'll remind you of what that is, right? First John 5, 5 says the one who overcomes or the one who conquers is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So if we read it that way, the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. I, I can't wrap my brain around this thought. Not only has Jesus condescended as the one knocking, but he's saying, you lost, self-righteous, arrogant, evil people. 
Not only am I going to knock and, and initiate relationship, but I'll promote you. It's unbelievable. He wants to give these people the hope of going from being a saint, from a sinner to a saint, from rebellion to royalty, literally pulling them from hell and giving them heaven, but not only heaven, seated next to Jesus himself. What grace. Can you wrap your brain around that grace? It, it, it almost doesn't make sense until I look in the mirror. <laughs> it doesn't make sense until I look at my own life. I waited and I waited on the Lord. At last he looked. He heard my cry. He picked me up out of the miry clay, out of the mud. He set my foot on a rock. He put a God song in my mouth that I could sing to all the world that some may come to know Jesus. That's what he did for me, and he can do it for any sinner. All we have to do is open the door. Listen. Receive. God's grace promotes us in unimaginable ways. So listen, this is the thing that Jesus asked of the church of Laodicea. I'm going to ask you the same thing. What's the condition of your life today? What's the condition of your spiritual life today? Are you apathetic to the things of God? Are you self-reliant? I don't really need God. Can I remind you that attitude makes Jesus sick? Is it possible that there is some deception in your life? You may not know what you don't know. That's why you need people who help you and love you and speak truth in love to you. Do you lack some awareness? Here's the third thing. Have you invested your life in the things of this world? Like money and job and cars and houses and, and the things that will burn up and melt and you don't care about the things that do. May we invest our lives in eternity. In Jesus. Because when we invest our lives in the things that don't matter, he says we are disgusting to be pitied. We're naked. We're blind. We're poor. Only Jesus meets the deepest needs of our lives. That's the gold that matters. That's what we need to be investing in. Those white garments that can cover our sinfulness. The way God opens our eyes to the things that matter. Help us see what matters most. Help our hearts long for what matters most. Friends, I think it's time that we invest our lives in those things. In that same unbelievable grace that Jesus, King of Heaven, would condescend to the worst church in our list. They didn't do one good thing. They were lost, and yet he knocks, and yet he forgives, yet he longs for relationship, yet he wants to promote to heaven and to his throne even. The question is, are we listening? Everybody look right here for a second. Are you listening? Would you just ask your heart that right now? Are you, am I listening? God, am I listening? Because every church, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm confident that the Lord led us to do this series because he had something to say to us in this series. Are we listening? Maybe you've lost your love for Jesus. You got the theology part down. You got the good works down, but maybe you've lost your love for Jesus. Maybe you just need to be encouraged to keep on keeping on in trials. Maybe you need to realize that you can't live a life for Christ and compromise your witness in sinfulness. Maybe you have a dead faith and you need to remember who you are and whose you are and wake up. See, the good news this morning is Jesus loves even the worst church. He loves sinners. He loves me. Praise God for his grace and his loving kindness. I want to pray this morning as I close. 
I know we've been social distancing, and I know that this, this moment in our, our country is a strange one. And yet Jesus is all we need. And this morning, he knocks. Whatever's going on in your heart, whatever's going on in your life, whatever's going on in your marriage, whatever's going on in your finances, whatever's going on in the stuff of life, we need to surrender it to him. And we say, Lord, give me the salve that opens my eyes to see what matters most. And may my life be invested in the things that don't burn up. May my life be known as one that is covered by the blood of Jesus and covered by the robe of righteousness. Give me awareness of the things that I'm not. We're going to open the altar. If you need to come and pray, if you need to speak with me, I'll be here. Other elders are available. Are you listening? Are your ears open? Will you respond? That's what worship is. Worship is our response to God's initiation. He has initiated. He's initiated. He's calling out to you. Now is our chance to respond. Father, in this moment, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes. Help us to invest in the things that matter most. May we be covered by your grace. Thank you for this unbelievable love that you show the church of Laodicea, the unbelievable love you've shown South City Church, the unbelievable love you've shown me that you would promote <laughs> such a broken and sinful person and that you would you would dine with me. You'd be in relationship with me and you would save me before nightfall. God, if there's one person here this morning, one person watching on, on Facebook Live, God, wherever they are, if they don't know you as their Savior, Father, may they stop and say, Jesus, I hear you. I hear the knocking. I hear your desire for relationship. Please come into my life. Save me. Forgive me of my sin. Wash it away. Make me clean. Give me that robe of righteousness. Open my eyes to the things that matter most and give me the courage to invest in you above all things. We pray it in your name by the power of the cross, the blood of Jesus, and the Spirit it makes it all possible. Lord, would you do this work now? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand with us. If you need to come down, you come up.